Good morning, church. Uh, wonderful to be here with you all and wonderful to see you uh, here today as well. Uh, today we're going to start a short series on what was brought up as the vision for our church for 2022. Does anyone know what that vision is? Fantastic. No one's brave enough. All right. Well, the vision for our church, I suppose, for this year is to become a disciple-making church, DMC, a disciple-making church. And so today I'll be talking about discipleship. Uh, now, to be honest, uh, discipleship, to me anyway, seems like something that has sort of eluded our church uh, for some time now. Uh, what I mean by that is we've never really embraced, I think, a strong discipleship culture. Now, it's not normal for us to talk about making disciples. It's not normal for us to be discipled by someone, and it's not that normal for us to seek someone to disciple ourselves. Um, there hasn't really been a uh, concerted church-wide effort to ensure that we're consistently reaching out and raising up new believers. Of course, there has been efforts in order to do this, uh, but perhaps not as what I believe we should be doing. And there are those who want to grow in the faith who are not always put into intentional discipleship relationships. Up until now, much of this responsibility has been with the Grace Group leaders. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? They're meant to be the under-shepherds who are appointed to look after God's flock. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, this approach may not be the most ideal. And don't get me wrong, small groups of course have their place and they can achieve similar outcomes. But like anything, there is still room for improvement. Discipleship is the investing of one person into another with the focus of both becoming more like Jesus together. Now there is so much to say about this topic and I can't hope to imagine uh, that I'll be able to cover uh, as much as I would like or as many questions as you might have uh, here now or in even a sermon series. Uh, so there are other methods in which you can learn about this topic. Um, this year there will be another three workshops. We've already had one uh, so far on the topic uh, planned, and they're run by far more qualified people than myself. Um, the one that we pre previously had with Roger was fantastic, and it really was a breath of fresh air to see and to hear from someone who'd obviously invested all of his life uh, into making disciples. Uh, but fortunately for me, there are some clear biblical principles that I'm able to share with us today. Uh, and I just want to make three points, uh, three very select points regarding making disciples. Uh, the first point is that making disciples is God's plan to reach the world. God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, to die on the cross for us, but it's up to us. He's entrusted us with spreading that good news, that gospel, to everyone around us. The second point is that all true followers of Jesus really are disciple makers. If you are committed to following Jesus, then you must also be committed to making disciples. And finally, I'm going to touch on a little bit how we can make disciples just like Jesus did, by modeling it through the way we live our lives. My hope is that by the end of today's sermon, you'll understand the vital role that you play in God's plan to reach the world. Prayerfully, you'll be reinvigorated to go and make disciples, and you'll be equipped with just enough knowledge to get you started. 
For those who are convinced of the need of such change like myself, I hope that you'll raise the topic in your small groups. I pray that you'll talk about it over lunch or whenever else you meet with brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for this opportunity to be able to share your word with your people this morning. Father, I thank you for your promises in your word. I thank you that your ways and your thoughts are higher than mine. And I pray, Lord, that it's your thoughts and your words that will go forth this morning. I thank you that your word promises that when your word goes forth, it shall not return to you empty. That just as the rain waters the plants and helps the flowers to grow on the earth, so shall your word go forth and achieve the purposes that you have for it, that will accomplish the plans that you intend for it. And so, Father, I leave today in your hands. I pray that you be glorified and that, God, that you would speak right to the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. God's plan for the world is to bring everyone and everything under the lordship of Christ. Ephesians 1, 8 to 10. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That is God's plan. At the end of time, when God deems fit, God will restore the right order of everything on earth and in heaven, united together under Christ. Put it another way, as Paul does in Philippians 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year, but I do know that one day I will kneel before Jesus and confess him as Lord. And I know that you will too. And my parents will and your parents will. My brother and my sister will. Your children, your family, your friends, your workmates, your neighbors, everybody here and everybody watching online will. Everybody who's ever been and everybody who ever will be will one day acknowledge and submit to the Lordship of Christ. Many like myself will do so freely and joyfully, having known all along, but many more will do so because of God's revealed authority. You see, God's plan is for the whole world to recognize and worship the risen Christ. But the question is, how is God going to make that happen? How is he going to reach the nations with the good news of his Son? His desire is that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. And he's going to do it one individual at a time. A very familiar verse, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. What would your last words be to someone if you were never going to see them again? What would you say to them? I think you'd want to make sure that you conveyed the most important things in your life to them, wouldn't you? Of course, Jesus' final words are vitally important. 
They're not merely sentimental or a nice suggestion. No, Jesus' final words are in fact a command. All the time that Jesus has spent investing in his disciples over the past three years have culminated in this one point at time. All along, he's been preparing them for his departure. And he starts off by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just in case you thought that this command was an optional extra of the Christian life, Jesus throws behind it the weight of the authority of all heaven and earth. At my workplace, I lead a small team of software developers. Uh, And sometimes we find bugs in our code and that will affect customers and and naturally that will become our immediate number one priority. Uh, Usually that's not a problem and we drop what we're doing and get straight onto it. Uh, But if there is a team member who doesn't understand the importance of doing this task, then I'll tell them that the big boss, Jimmy, he wants it done. And he wants it done yesterday. I'm not making that up. When it comes to fixing production issues, it's really stressful, and that's usually the case. Uh, See, what I'll do is invoke the higher authority of Jimmy to get the point across. If my colleague knows what's good for them, he'll get onto it and do it or face the consequences. Now, that's kind of funny, but if that's how it works in my small team, what does it mean then when Jesus, the death-conquering, resurrected Son of God, invokes the authority of the Heavenly Father that he's been given over the entirety of the heavens and the earth. Well, it means that we better listen up. It means that what he's about to say is to become your number one priority bar none. It means I don't care what you're in the middle of doing right now. This is your new task and you need to get onto it not yesterday but yesteryear. You see, when it comes to the Great Commission, it doesn't matter what your boss thinks or what Jimmy thinks or even what your parents think or even what the government thinks. God's authority trumps all of that. You might get fired from your job. You might get disowned from your family. You might even get deported from your country and you might even die. But any of these things is far better than to have to stand before God and tell him one day why you did not trust or listen to his son. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's the charge that we've been given. That's the task that is of utmost importance. And that's how God is going to reach the nations. He's going to send out his faithful disciples to go and make more disciples. God wants to use us to reach others with the message of his son, to grow them, to equip them, to reach out and make more disciples who will in turn make even more disciples. That's how the kingdom of God will grow one disciple at a time. Well-known Australian Christian author and youth pastor Tim Hawkins says in his book called Disciples Who Will Last, he says this, When we invest time and effort into a believer to help them be a faithful disciple and instill in them a vision that they will go out and make yet more disciples who who will make even more disciples, then we are helping to achieve the mission that Jesus has set before us, that we will make disciples of all nations. You see, this is the privileged role that we have in building God's kingdom. 
Every day we have the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of those around us for Jesus. We can use our time and energy to make a lasting impact for eternity by investing into others one life at a time. Luke 15, 4-7 Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You see, God's plan is not to hold as many mega conferences as he can and bring stadiums full of people to Jesus, one major city at a time. No, he's willing to leave 99 of the flock in the open country in search of that one lost sheep. In God's eyes, it's worth risking the 99 to pursue the one. That's the nature of God's heart, because each individual is precious and matters to God, and that's why there's so much rejoicing in heaven when even one sinner repents. And if you're prepared to risk the 99 to find the one, then you can be sure that it's also worth doing everything that you can in order to keep and nurture and grow that one. Now, from a human perspective, it might not seem like the most efficient plan. But God is not asking us to worry about his methods. He's asking us to trust him, to not lean on our own understanding, because his way really is the most effective. If we take a brief look at Jesus' ministry on earth, it was just three years in which Jesus spent the bulk of his time training 12 disciples. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in getting as many followers on Instagram as he could. When he fed the 5,000 or the 4,000, not including women and children, his intention wasn't to see how many of them he could get to follow him. No, Jesus specifically appointed 12 men, and he focused his efforts on them. And even of those 12, he had his inner circle of the three. And it would be these 12 disciples who would go on to reach the world after Jesus was gone. It wasn't quantity that he was looking for. It was quality. See, God's not interested in merely getting people to say a prayer and, and just give their life to Jesus. Real discipleship is so much more than that. God wants to make disciples who will last, radical disciples who live their entire lives making real difference for Jesus. Jesus knew that he would achieve more by deeply transforming the lives of just a handful of men than he would by attempting to convert every single person that he came across. By focusing on just a few, Jesus ensured that even after his death, those disciples would, would continue to multiply and bear fruit. And that's God's plan to reach the nations, by changing just one life at a time. And he's called us to play an integral part of the work that he's doing. Which brings me to my next point. True followers of Jesus are disciple-makers. A disciple is a disciple-maker. You see, we often treat disciple-making a bit like how I treat flossing my teeth. It's really an optional extra. It's great if I get around to it, but no big loss if I don't. And actually, I don't really do it very often at all. You see, the Bible, on the other hand, it doesn't distinguish between a disciple and a disciple-maker. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, then you are also a disciple-maker. 
And if you're not in the business of making disciples, then you're not really a true follower of Jesus. Now that's a huge claim, so how can I say that? Well, let's take a look at how Jesus appointed, called, and made his disciples. Mark chapter 3, 13 to 15. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. You see, Jesus didn't appoint the twelve just for fellowship. He didn't appoint them just so that he could support them through life's difficulties. He didn't do it just to do life with them. He appointed them specifically for a purpose, with an outcome already in mind. He chose them, the verse says, that they might first be with him, but also crucially, that he might send them out, that they might preach and drive out demons. See, his intention is that they would first grow and be equipped in order to be put into faithful service for the kingdom. Not for just when Jesus was beside them, but even as they were sent out after he'd gone to heaven. The definition of the word apostle literally means one who is sent. And just as Jesus had discipled them, they were expected to disciple others. They're not just passively following Jesus around. No, they're being trained to go and make disciples because that's what a disciple is. You know, if I wanted to pique someone's interest in Jesus, I might say something like, come and follow Jesus. He'll offer you eternal life. Or come and follow Jesus. He can give you peace in this crazy world. Or come and learn about God's unconditional love for you. But you know how Jesus invited his disciples? Matthew 4.19, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or in the 1984 NIV, I will make you fishes of men. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't say, follow me and I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you hope. I'll give you healing, all the things that Jesus actually does give us. You see, Jesus' promise is that he's going to make them into fishes of men. That's his invitation. They're going to be God's bait in a sea of lost souls. They're going to reach people with the good news of Jesus and help them to find God. When we are called by Jesus, that's the life he's calling us to. That's because following Jesus means becoming a fisher of men. Another example, when Jesus calls Levi in Luke 5, 27 to 29. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. What's the first thing that Levi does after choosing to follow Jesus? He got up, he left everything, he followed Jesus, and in the very next sentence, he went out and held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. He invited all the other text collectors and others that he could find so that they could meet Jesus as well. What a testimony. One moment, he's sitting at his booth at work collecting people's taxes, and the next minute, he's handing in his resignation, putting on a lavish banquet. Not only that, but he's invited all his fellow, fellow tax collectors, all that he could find to come and meet Jesus. 
Maybe they thought he was crazy, or maybe they thought he had the opportunity of a lifetime. Either way, they observed the radical change in Levi's life, and they got to meet Jesus in the process. Because that's what true followers of Jesus are like. They make disciples by bringing people to Jesus. One other example, the demon-possessed man that Jesus saves in Mark chapter 5, reading from verses 18 to 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This man wasn't called to follow Jesus like the other disciples. He wasn't asked to learn the theology of salvation. He wasn't asked to join the local synagogue or complete a beginner's course in Christianity. No, the very first thing he is told to do is to go home and tell everyone about what God has done in his life, to tell them about God's love and mercy for him. Do you notice a pattern in these three verses, these three events that I've shared? You see, there's an expectation that those whom Jesus calls, he will also transform into disciple makers. Jesus' intention is to make us all fishers of men, to open up our homes and bring people to Jesus, to go back to our towns and tell them of the love of God. You see, a witness is only an effective witness if they tell others their testimony. You cannot separate evangelism from discipleship. As Rodney shared with us two weeks ago, they're two sides of the same coin. It is not possible to be a true follower of Jesus and keep your faith to yourself. Jesus' approach to making disciples and the Great Commission leave us no room for doubt here. If you are a follower of Jesus, then how are you contributing to God's kingdom? How are you bringing others to Jesus? How are you helping to accomplish God's plan of reaching the world? How are you fulfilling the Great Commission in leading the lost to come and know God? Tragically, I sense that the Western church today has made not sharing your faith an acceptable status quo. It's somehow okay to ignore the most urgent and most pressing need of all mankind just because it's well too hard or because we're just not very good at it. Let us reject this lie in the name of Jesus. You see, Jesus' expectation is that if you're a Christian, whether for 10 minutes or 10 years, you should be bold in sharing your faith with those who will listen. Many of us know far more about God and the Bible than the demon-possessed man knew or Levi knew, or even the first disciples knew about Jesus when they were first called. We have no excuse. Many of us have been Christians for years and yet have neglected this essential role. If you're serious about your commitment to Jesus, then sharing your faith is part and parcel of that faith. Being a disciple means being a disciple maker. So far, it might sound like making disciples is just another word for evangelism. And don't get me wrong, evangelism certainly is the first step in making a disciple. We've seen how from the onset, Jesus called people to himself with, the, with that very intention of transforming people into disciple makers. The next natural question that I have and that you might have is how do I disciple someone? How do I help grow someone into a disciple maker? And of course, this question is too large for me to give a comprehensive answer here. 
But let me shed just a little bit of light on how Jesus did it. In the following weeks, we're going to hear more from others about other Bible characters like Elijah and Paul. You see, Jesus involved the disciples in every aspect of his ministry. He showed them how dependent on prayer he really was. He involved them in his miracles. He taught them, and then he explained his teaching to them. He showed them how to teach, how to preach, how to minister, and he sent them out to minister on their own. He corrected them when they made mistakes. The disciples got to witness firsthand how he treated other people, the needy, the outcast, the cripple, the Pharisee, the soldier, the governor, women and children, his own family and friends. They saw how he treated those who wanted to make him king by force and those who wanted to kill him. You see, Jesus invested his life into his disciples and he equipped them to be able to reproduce that same transformation that they had experienced in the lives of others. In other words, Jesus modeled what it is to be a disciple. He didn't primarily just talk about it. He showed them by doing it himself. And he involved them in every step of the process. It's not like Jesus needed to use his disciples to perform miracles or to minister to people. He could have done it by himself. He could have distributed the bread and the fish without them, but he chose to use them. He could have spent more time preaching and healing and reaching even more people if he hadn't spent so much time and energy focusing on his disciples. But that wasn't his plan. His plan was to ensure that they could carry on making disciples well after he had gone. And so everything that Jesus did, he made sure that they were involved, that they were learning, that they were participating in his ministry. And he considered that investment worth it, even when they failed him and abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. In principle, how Jesus discipled his disciples is how we disciple someone else. We invest in them by modeling the life of Jesus to them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You see, Paul set the example for the Corinthians on how to live. He showed them what Jesus was like by living just as Jesus would. In the same way, we had to set the example by living like Jesus would so that others could follow. There's a saying that goes like this. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You see, the goal of discipleship is not merely to transfer knowledge. The goal of discipleship is to reproduce Christ-like character into another. That's why it can't only be taught. It has to be modeled. That's why the most important thing about training a disciple is not how much you know or how great your personality is or or how well you even get along with someone. The most important thing is the state of your heart. As we learned last week from Joe, what really matters is how connected you are to the true vine. It's this that matters most because it's the heart that we ultimately want to change when we disciple someone. When I teach someone how to shoot a basketball, I'm really teaching them how I shoot the ball. For better or for worse, what I'm really teaching them is the same technique that I've learned. I'm getting them to shoot the ball basically like I do. If I'm not disciplined in my technique, if my elbow is sloppy or if I'm fading backwards or to the side, then that's also going to be transferred to whoever I'm teaching. Jesus acknowledges this principle himself in Luke 6.40. 
The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. You see, an apprentice chef will learn a similar style to their master chef. A student in karate learns to fight like their sensei. A disciple will learn and replicate the example that's set before them. If you're weak in the area of evangelism, then the person that you're training will be the same. If your prayer life is non-existent, then you can expect the same from whoever you're discipling. If you only choose to obey God's word when it's convenient for you, then guess what your disciple will do as well. They will pick up on your enthusiasm or lack thereof for prayer. If you're honest and transparent about your faults and weaknesses, then your disciple will be too. If you prioritize God above all else, then they'll learn to do the same. Furthermore, the example that we set can't just be conveyed by what we say. You see, a disciple will learn more about how to treat their spouse and their children by watching you when you're at home with your family, and more than they will learn from you preaching a sermon on it. They'll learn about having patience when they're with you in the car as you navigate busy traffic. They'll learn how you handle winning and losing when they see you on the sporting field. They'll learn about commitment as you get up early and serve at church. They'll learn about trusting in God when you're facing trouble or tragedy. They'll learn to share their faith with others as you bring them alongside and share your faith with others. While training a disciple in the word is a necessary part of the process, the impact of a well-lived life cannot be understated. You reproduce whatever is in your heart. Whatever strengths or weaknesses you have, you will also reproduce. That is why the most effective disciple-makers are those who themselves are committed to becoming more like Jesus. Tim Hawkins, again, says the absolute determining factor in how well you can transform a new believer into a world-changing disciple is the state of your heart. Not their heart, but your heart, because whatever is in your heart is transferred into theirs. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is your connection with Jesus like right now? What kind of example are you setting for those around you? If you are discipling someone, what kind of disciple are you reproducing? What areas in your life do you recognize need change? How can you be more involved with the person that you're training? Now, if you're like me, then you've probably thought of making disciples more like an optional extra than a command. It's something we really have just tacked on to the Christian life and nice to have. I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. Therefore, I don't need to do anything else, we think. Making disciples is hard work, and I'm not very good at it. I don't know how to do it. It's fine for me to just keep my faith to myself. See, if you're guilty of any of these excuses, much like I am, then we need to confess our sin and repent before God. We need to shake off this apathy and realign our hearts with God's. And that's the choice that faces us even today. You see, one day Jesus will return, and we will have to give an account for the time that he's given us on earth. He's told us his plan to reach the world. He's made clear the role and the privilege that we have in partnering with him to go and make disciples of all nations. We can choose to invest in earthly pursuits that will ultimately amount to nothing, or we can be about the business of making disciples 
just as all true followers of Jesus are. And finally, the way we go about discipling others is by living just like Jesus did. We get to shape and mold others in such a way that they are equipped to reach others still to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have commissioned us, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you and that we should therefore go and make disciples. I thank you that this is not just our duty or obligation, but it really is our privilege. And Lord, for those of us who have been struggling, like I know I have, Father, I pray that you would change it from a, a, from a duty and an obligation to a role that we can delight in, from something that we can do with a joy, knowing that we can share the love of God with those around us. Father, I pray right now that you would change our hearts, that God, you would help us be obedient to your call, and that we would do so with great joy. Father, I believe you're clear in your word. And I believe you're clear about the vision for our church, the vision for your global church, your universal church. I believe you're clear about the strategy you have to make disciples of all nations, that we are to be your witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Lord, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear your call this morning. Father, help us. Lord, I pray that we really would be a disciple-making church, that, God, we really would produce disciples who last that God, that they would bear fruit and that we would multiply. Father, I pray that we would not be distracted by earthly things, but instead, God, we would focus on what really matters, that God, we would be your true disciples, that we'd be eager to please you, knowing that it's our privilege to serve you, to reach others, to reach the lost for you. Lord, would you change us? Would you help us? Father, I thank you that Jesus set the example on how we are to live. I thank you, God, that he has taught us and given us and equipped us everything that we need. I thank you that the work that you begin, you also complete, that you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I thank you that we can trust your promises, that you would build your church. And Lord, may we be willing participants in that building. Father, we thank you thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this mandate over our lives, and we, prepare, we pray that we be bold in fulfilling it. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week, church.